Ecclesiastes chapter 3, if you'd like to locate that in your Bibles. Ecclesiastes 3. In a moment, I will be reading, or we will be reading together, verses 1 to 22 of chapter 3. We're not going to talk about everything that's in that section. We're going to focus on one thing, one part of it. It's actually a very familiar passage, and for those of you who are members of a particular generation, or if you are a person of younger generation who is an old soul like Sally, and that's a compliment to say that she has an old soul, but if you have that old soul, the passage that we're about to read here will most likely bring a song back to your mind. And uh, it was a song that was originally written in 1955, It was first recorded in 1959, and it was called Turn, Turn, Turn. You guys remember that song? How many of you remember that song? Come on, Rob, I know that you remember it. He's not gonna admit that or something. But it was uh, recorded by a group called The Birds, and uh, I remember it. It uh, became Uh, released as a single in 1965, and it actually rose to number one on the Billboard Top Hits chart, and it was an international hit. It was across the world that people loved this song. And it's, as I've grown older, it's been somewhat surprising to me that during a time that was actually quite similar to our time now, with all the cultural upheaval and and the Uh, riots and all the stuff that's been going on today was going on back then, but it was during a time that really kind of featured a massive cultural upheaval and focused on anti-establishment and focused on thoughts and focused on anti-organized religion, um, that a song that was a direct quote from the King James Version of the Old Testament of the Bible was a number one hit. That just seems kind of ironic to me that they weren't putting that together. Ultimately, I think it was popular because of its call for peace. And that was the end of the the chorus or the song verses was a call for peace. I know it's not too late, but I believe as well, it speaks to a common part of our humanity and our lives under the sun. So I think it, it connected with people then, not just because of peace, but because of something that we all share. And uh, it seems to me, I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm sentimental and old and I remember the song from back then, but it seems to me that when people hear the song today, they connect with it as well. It's an easy tune and, um, and the words ring true to us. So we'll read Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 22, and, and uh, we're going to focus mostly on the first part of chapter 3, but um, but listen to the words. There's a word here that's going to be used um, actually 31 times in these verses, and uh, I hope you can pick up on that word and understand what he's trying to communicate. Beginning in verse 1. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep 
and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the, into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Did you pick up on the word that he uses over and over and over? What is it? Time. In thinking about that, and I, it struck me that and this may seem like pretty simple stuff, but we live in a world that is bound by time and the events of life. I mentioned that that song, Turn, 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 was such a hit. And I started realizing, as I was thinking about this passage, how many hit songs over the decades are related to the topic of time. If you just started thinking about songs, uh, one of the songs for a, a, a movie of ours that's kind of a favorite movie and it came out right before we were married was called Somewhere in Time, Jane Seymour and Christopher Reeves. And we like the song, uh, that's the theme song of it. Uh, it's it's uh, Rachmaninoff's, uh, I forget the name of it, a, a theme. Uh, she did something to a theme on Paganini. but. Uh, 
that song and that movie has always been in my mind ever since early on in our life. There's a lot of other songs, time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. And even um, Harry Styles has a big hit from the movie The Greatest Showman about time in the last few years. There's a lot of songs that we think about related to time. Solomon points out to us in, these, in this passage that our lives are marked by moments in time. We continually track that time as part of how we view and organize our lives. If you read through this list and you start thinking about your own life, that you start to think of events and things that have happened in certain periods and certain events, um, times of, of breaking down and building up, times of mourning, times of celebrating. There's these, there's these moments and we continually track them in our lives. We're born and a birth certificate is issued for us and it marks not only the date but the moment in time that we were born. We die and a death certificate is issued not only marking the date but the time of our death. I have been by the bedside of people who have died and one of the first questions is out of the nurses or whoever is there, they, they want to know what time did they die and that has to be recorded. We use calendars to help us remember important dates and times. There's a huge market in selling calendars that you put up on your wall and people who are big on decorating and having their house look a certain way will put these things up on their wall with a thumbtack because calendars are so important in our lives. We keep track of work appointments, birthdays, dinner dates, anniversaries, and other significant times in our lives. And now we have apps on our phones. For me, it's on my Bible. Remember, that's my Bible, and it happens to have a phone with it. But we have apps on our phones that track uh, when it's time for us to leave for an appointment, and we also have a little thing letting us know when it's supposed to end. I remember uh, years ago I had a colleague that I think he was probably the most organized person I have ever met, and I have other names for his behavior as well, but he was obsessive about utilizing every moment of every day. I've never met anyone quite like him. But I remember I was walking down a hallway and he walked up to me and um, he, was, he worked in the dean's office at the college and he had a question for me. And, uh, and he said, do you have a minute? And I said, yeah. And, uh, and he, he said, he started asking this question and, uh, and I started answering and I wasn't very far into the answer when he had this little device called a Palm Pilot. Now, how many of you ever had a Palm Pilot? I had one of those. It was a little organizing schedule thing, uh, precursor to our apps that we use today on our phones and our, and our watches. But his Palm Pilot started beeping at him. And I said, do you have an appointment you need to get to? And he said, oh, yeah, this is, this is my bathroom break. He actually had on his schedule what time he was supposed to go to the bathroom 
in the afternoon. I've never met anybody quite that obsessive about their time, but maybe we have become a lot like that with our apps today. We are often slaves to the clock. Do you ever feel that way? We are expected to begin work at a specific time and at least continue to a specific time. Our employers want us to arrive. It's important that we get there at a certain time. It isn't quite so important as to whether or not we work. We quit at the appointed time. It's actually a good thing if you keep working in their eyes. We wake in time to get ready and we leave in time to arrive punctually, punctually and we watch the clock as we anticipate the time when we can leave. How many of you who have jobs at some time in the afternoon look at the clock and are dis discouraged by how much time is left to work in that afternoon? Some of us over the years have been discouraged by how little time, how close the quitting time is coming and, and we haven't gotten everything done. How many of you at some time or another have said, I wish I had more than 24 hours in a day? We are slaves to that clock. And our Western culture judges us positively and negatively by our use of time, our awareness of time, the amount of time we are willing to sacrifice to our work, and how much time we spend with our family. We speak of quality time versus quantity time, as if they are polar opposites. We can't have both. We either have quantity or we have quality, and why can't they both be the same? But we speak in terms that they're not. And it seems oftentimes that our thoughts are consumed by the ticking of the clock. How many times have you been in a meeting or in a conversation with someone and you ask them how they are and they actually start to tell you? And you are doing everything you possibly can not to look at your watch. We value time. Our identities and sadly our value to society are inextricably linked to time and expressed in our age. We are young or middle-aged or older or elderly or old as dirt. That's the last category. But our identities are linked to how long our time on this earth. In the youth of our lives, time seems to drag on forever. Days are long and big events seem stranded far off in the future. By middle age, life hums along at a tolerable but faster pace. I remember my 30s and 40s and how it was just kind of like, for me, that was, time was going at a good rate. It didn't seem too slow, it didn't seem too fast. Unexpectedly though, one day, we realized that the weeks and months and years of our lives seemed to be passing far more quickly than they did. The little hands of our toddlers that grasped our finger as their first steps were celebrated have grown up and hold the hands of their new love and we ask ourselves where the time went and we speak of events long ago that seemed to have happened just yesterday. How often do those of us who are older say, it just seems Terry and I in two weeks from today will have been married 40 years. I can't even wrap my head around the time that's gone by. 
because it does seem like yesterday. And there's actually a song, Yesterday, Life Was Such an Easy Game to Play. And then suddenly it feels as though we are careening out of control down a mountain road without any brakes, time now becoming hard to track, trying to make the most of every moment we have left. But as obsessed with time as we are in our Western culture, it seems that the observance of time and our fascination and, and slavery to it is not unique to the Western mindset. 3,000 years ago, Solomon lived in an Eastern world with an Eastern perspective and recognized how much time rules our lives. One of the most unique poems in scripture it is a one of a kind. There is no other poem in scripture that's laid out, that's structured the way this one is. And there's all thing, kinds of things that I could tell you about the poetry of it. You can find that out for yourself sometime. But time was, was important even in Solomon's day before they had apps, before they had clocks like we have today. Solomon writes of the seasons of life by which we track our existence and mark out our days under the sun. He tells us that there are occasions, events that we all experience during this time between the fall of man and the ultimate redemption of man, between Eden and the new earth. He lays out several events of human experience using 14 parallel statements and 28 illustrations. Killing and healing, tearing and sowing, planting and plucking up, building up and tearing down. He speaks at the very beginning of the fact that we are born and we die. The clock ticks and at a moment in history, we take our first breaths and that cry comes from our mouths and, and there is celebration that that baby is born and the clock ticks on to the day that we die and we take our last breath and we cease to exist in this life and mourning follows. So there is a time of mourning and a time to celebrate, to dance. He, he links a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. He links that directly to being born and dying. It parallels the emergence and the end of the food we eat to sustain our lives. And in between our existence of birth, our moments of birth and death are times of war. Overriding in this, there's this birth and there is this death there is this existence where there are times of war, as he says in verse eight, a time for war and a time for peace. And he illustrates those times of war with words such as kill and break down and mourn and casting stones and refraining from embrace and tearing and loss and casting away and being silent and hate. But he speaks of other times in our lives, in our existence, 
where there is peace. And he uses the words heal and build up and laugh and dance and gather stones and embrace and seek and keep and sow and speak and love. All are words tied to our experience of peace. But it seems like life, at least for me, has had far more times of what I would call war than peace. Our lives seem to move endlessly between times of peace and times of war, back and forth, filling our lives with battles and much less peace. And ironically to me, as I've thought about this passage, in spite of the fact that these seasons of life are a common human experience, and, as, and in, in spite of the fact that they just seem to ebb and flow in our lives, it seems that we are often motivated by a desire to control our lives. I think that is what underlies our calendars. It gives us a sense of control, a sense of planning, a sense of holding on to these moments and, and using them. But what Solomon is communicating to us is that these events and these times are beyond us. We cannot control when a person is born. Say, well, we can do a C-section. Yeah, but we still, we still fully can't control it and we really can't control when a person dies. We try to control our lives in such a way that time becomes our slave and the unpleasant moments of life are reduced. Knowingly or unwittingly, we live, in the words of William Henley, as though we have unconquerable souls, that we are the masters of our fate and the captain of our souls. And we're fools. And Solomon, who is much nearer to death than birth, who is more powerful and more wealthy than any of us, who is gifted with unusual wisdom from God, who has massive amounts of control, puts a pin in our metaphorical balloon and exposes all of our hot air that we think we're in charge of our lives and we're in charge of our time. Solomon wants us to understand that we are not in control and never will be in control of the time or the events of our lives. From Solomon's perspective, that job belongs to someone who has a far greater, works on a far greater pay grade. To bring us back to Psalm 8 for a moment, when we consider the vastness of our universe and we consider how minute our earth is in the vastness of that space and how small we are on this planet earth, what a joke it is that we would ever think we can control what's happening, time or events.
And Solomon wants us to understand the one who is truly in control, and it's not the Wizard of Oz. It's not the Wizard of Oz with his hidden levers and loud proclamations. Solomon wants us to understand that the person who's in charge of all these events, the person who has created all that exists, the person who transcends time himself, the one who sovereignly reigns over the affairs of humanity is God and no human being. It is God, as we learn in verse 11. It is God who has made everything beautiful in his time. In its time. He reminds us of the creation story when he says this. God has made everything beautiful in its time. We don't see that beauty now. But God, when he created, pronounced all that he had made good. It was beautiful in its time. I marvel so often at the beauty around us. I'm a person who is tightly connected to the, to the vegetation aspect of the creation. I love plants. I, we, we downsized when we came uh, to our current house because we realized we were getting older and less energy to take care of the gardens. Wren and, I don't know, Marcia and, I don't know if Gideon's mowed our yard, but, but if you've mowed our yard, you know all the plants. We have stuffed plants into every possible piece of ground that we have that isn't grass, and the grass is starting to diminish. We have a plan for a project on the one side of our house, there'll be less mowing, that's going to be all rock, and we're going to plant more plants in over there. We used to have three quarters, almost three quarters of an acre in Tama. We had gardens everywhere. People referred to our, our place as like a park in the city. We loved plants. We still do. We find places to put them. My roses are getting back up to around, I have almost 40 different roses now. And that's just part of the plantings that we have. I'm, I love all of that, but the reality is that when I look at a rose, as that bud begins to unfurl, and the glossiness of the green leaves that surround it, and I love, I love the scent there's so many different scents that roses have, and the colors that are important to me as I pick roses. As that bud unfurls and that rose begins to display itself, the reality is it's just an echo of the beauty that was before the fall. As we look around, and I, I sit on our screen porch, and there's there's all kinds of different trees out and back, and, and, and I, I see the green of the grass, and I see the green of the birch tree in the neighbor's yard, and the soft maple, and our arborvitaes, and our crabapple tree, and I look at the pine trees in a different direction, and I sit there and I marvel at all the different shades of green. And it's just a shadow 
of what was before the fall. We're told in Romans 8 that the creation groans. God made everything beautiful in its time. He spoke it, and it was. And then we come along with our human efforts, and we're time-bound and sin-stained creatures. And we think we create massive beauty. But it's God, and he's the only one that makes things beautiful in its time. And where we are time-bound, Solomon states in verse 14 that what God does endures forever. Solomon has spoken so much in this short few chapters of the book about how we, we are born, we live, we die, and we're forgotten. We live so hard every day to leave a legacy. So many people do. But the reality is God is the only one who endures forever. And his work is the only work that endures forever. And as I think about God's work, and I think about who he is, there is something else that comes through in this passage. As we relate to God and as we relate to each other and as we relate to our world, I find it fascinating. And I think it's partially at the core of our frustration with time as Solomon tells us in the midst of this treatise on time that God has put eternity in man's heart. There's something in us as bound and controlled and trying to control time in our experience. There's something in us, there's a sense in us that there is something beyond this time. Even people who are not Christians believe that there, or have a sense that there is something beyond this life, something beyond the daily cycling of the sun, something better than our slavery to time in the rubble of Eden. It's reflected in the common words that people use, churched or unchurched. It's reflected in that common hope of better days, a common belief in life beyond the grave. It is revealed when we speak of our loved ones as in a better place. How do we comfort our souls? By telling ourselves that that person is in a better place that they now don't feel pain, that they now do not have the frustrations of life. They have somehow transcended this time and transcended the brokenness, transcended the rubble. And it's common statements, again, for both Christians and non-Christians. Consider 
the language of Native Americans that someone went on to the happy hunting grounds. Those ideas existed long before anyone brought the message of the gospel to those lands. God has put a sense of eternity in us and we long for the day that we will no longer be bound by time. And yet our understanding of this is cloudy because as Solomon tells us, God put this sense of eternity in us but he did it in a way that man can, mankind cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. But what Solomon didn't seem to realize is that God had a plan in place that would be revealed to humanity when the time was right. That eternity that was put in us, the key would be handed to us in time. This time was hinted at in how God related to his ancient people of Israel. An aware reader of the Old Testament will notice in the history of Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses the importance not only of certain events but the timing of those events. We're given specific details as to when those events happened and how the timing was important. In the establishing of the kingdom and the history of the kings, time weaves it all together. We even have the story of Hezekiah who, who was dying and prayed for God to give him more time and God gives him six more years. Those kinds of stories come up over and over again, emphasizing to us that God weaves all of time together. The judgment of Israel is time specific, when it will happen and how long it will be. And the future prophecies of the coming king priest, the Messiah, are tied to time. And then we're told that in the fullness of time, Jesus, the fulfillment of all those prophecies was born. The Old Testament is reminding us of time and time and time and time, looking forward to the fullness of time, all wrapped up in Jesus. And Jesus, as he walked this earth, spoke of the signs of the times and the shortness of time, and to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He was specific as he spoke of the sign of Jonah and the rebuilding of the temple, both involving three days. And we even read this story this morning from Matthew, where Jesus says in three days that he's going to die and that he in three days he will come back. As the day of his death drew near, Jesus spoke of it as his hour. And finally, as Jesus stood on a mountaintop with his disciples, upon being asked when his kingdom would come, Jesus told them, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons. What an interesting statement. It's not for you to know the time or the seasons. Do you think it's possible that Jesus is referencing them back to Ecclesiastes 3? To everything there is a season and there is a time. 
What was he trying to say to them? Jesus told them that they were to wait for the Holy Spirit and in his power be witnesses of Jesus to the end of the earth. As I read Jesus' words, I believe there are echoes of Ecclesiastes 3. That God has put eternity into our hearts and it is through faith in Jesus that we find, enjoy, and understand abundant, eternal life. Solomon wants us to recognize that the one who transcends time controls all the times of our lives. That's what Jesus was trying to tell the disciples. The times and the seasons are in his hands. Just as Solomon observed in Ecclesiastes 3, it's in his hands all of those times. And I believe that what Jesus wanted his disciples to know and was what Solomon wrote of in Ecclesiastes, that we bow before God in reverence and awe. We're told in Ecclesiastes 3.14 that God is the one whose work endures forever and no one else can take from it or add to it. He goes on to say specifically that God has done this so that people will fear before him. God's purpose in establishing times and seasons and controlling all of what is to be is purposed so that we as people will bow down before him in reverence and awe. Our frustrations with time commitments and not having enough time and feeling bound by time is to drive us back to God who controls all that time and humbly submit to his purposes in our lives. If we recognize who God is, if we recognize his control, if we recognize his sovereignty, our response and his, to, his, to his purposes and to his work is that we will adore him and be in awe of him. God has done it so that people will fear before him. There's one more thing that Solomon and Jesus and Paul the Apostle want us to understand. It is that there will be a day when this time under the sun will end. For each of us, there is an appointed time when our time in the rubble of Eden will cease. I can't wait. I've said that before. I will keep saying it. I can't wait. This is not my best life. This world, with the beauty it still retains and the goodness that still exists because of God and Jesus, is nothing compared to what will be. And for each of us, there is this time coming 
when our lives cease and judgment ensues. Solomon actually tells us that God will judge the righteous and the wicked as you read down in this chapter because all of this life has meaning and significance. The Apostle Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5 that all must appear, appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. From, from our perspective in light of our recognition of God's control, our concern is not to be how much time do we have, but our concern, to be, our concern is to be how much of that time are we using for God's glory and others' good. With all of this in mind, the question then comes to me, how should we live in the time our Heavenly Father has allotted to us? And a verse that comes to my mind is also recorded for us in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, just before, he says this just before he talks about that all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says this, these words, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. But whether we are home or away, and these are the key words, we make it our aim to please him. You got up this morning. Your alarm went off, or you just woke up, or your weather radio went off in the night and you never got back to sleep. But at some point, you woke up this morning, and at some point, theoretically, you will go back to sleep tonight. Time has been gifted to you. Don't spend your day trying to control it. Don't spend your day being a slave to it. Recognize it as a gift from God to be used to please him. So what are your plans for today? What's on that calendar? What's on that app? How have you already used your time this morning to please him? How will you use the rest of your time to please him? I got a wake-up call this week in relation to time. My oldest brother, who's 67, I got a letter from him this week or an email that last Sunday was his last day as a pastor. It's surreal to me. He's been in Canada over 45 years, planted a church in Manitoba, planted a church on an island off of uh, British Columbia, west of British Columbia, Nanaimo, and planted a church in Abbotsford, British Columbia, where he's been for the last 25 years. Today, 
my nephew takes his place as pastoring that church. And God's purposes move forward, but it really kind of rocked my world. That I'm old enough to have a brother who's retiring from the pastorate. And for some reason to me, that's it's more significant than retiring from anything else. Whether I'm right or wrong, that's, that's how I see it. I wrote him and told him that, I think I've shared this with you in the past, that the Barna Group, Barna Research Group, says that of every 10 people who begin a career as a pastor, only one of them will finish as a pastor. Nine of 10 do not retire as a pastor. And I wrote him and I told him, you're part of the one out of the 10. Paul said at the end of his life, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. He made it his aim to please God. The issue is not how much time we have. The issue is what we do with it. My prayer for myself and my prayer for you as people of Northbrook is that our greatest desire as we live out the seasons and times of our life under the sun will be that we aim to please him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fact that you are in control. And I say that knowing full well, and you knowing full well, how frustrated sometimes I am with your control. I, like so many others here, live day to day with expectations of how things should be, how my day will go, how events will come to be on time and in the way that I intended them to be. And I believe too often without recognizing it that I am the captain of my soul and the master of my fate. But I am thankful that you are in control. Even in those times where you have delayed or made me wait or squashed my plans, as I look back, I can see how you have used those things to make me more like Jesus. I acknowledge that you're a good father and you give good gifts. Father, I pray that you would make us mindful of your purposes and your plans. I pray that you would give us hearts that love you more than anything else so that we will love your purposes and your plans more than anything else. And help us to live every day of our lives, every moment, and that's a big ask, but every moment of our lives, wanting to please you, to bring glory to your name, and to live in a way that's for the good of others. 
Help us to understand more of who you are and your love for us. In your son's name, amen.